theyeshiva.net. Everybody knows the story in Parshas told us, but I want to address a few aspects of the story that are easy to gloss over. Parshas told us we're introduced to the birth of Yitzchak and Rivka's twins, Isaac's and Rebecca's twins. Of course, the first child who emerges from Rivka's womb is Esau, or in English they call him Esau. And then it says, afterwards, afterwards his brother emerges from the womb, his hand is holding on to the heel of Esau, of his twin. And he doesn't say who's he, he called his name Yaakov. And of course, the word Yaakov comes from the word Ekev, which means a heel, because this little baby, as it emerged, he was holding on to his brother's heel, so they decided to name him Yaakov, which means a heel. And one immediately wonders, why would that become the identifying feature to characterize this child? He's not even holding on to his own heel. He's holding on to his brother's heel. That becomes his name, Yaakov. What's the significance of that? What's the meaning of that? I'm going to change the subject. We're going to come back to it a little later. As the kids grow up, the Torah says clearly, Yitzchak loved Esav. Literally, because he had game in his mouth. Kitsaya, there was game, hunted animals, befiv in his mouth. That's why he loved Yitzchak. And Rivka loved Yaakov. It doesn't say why she loved Yaakov. What does it mean? Kitsaya befiv, there is game in his mouth. Some commentators explain that Esav would feed Yitzchak. The Targum, the Unculus, the Aramaic translation of Chumash known as Targum Unculus says, Aramit say they have a achil because Yitzchak used to eat from the game that Ace of his son would hunt, so he cherished him, he loved him. Rashi gives a famous interpretation from the Medrash. Kitsayid Befiv means that Esav would trap, he would hunt Yitzchak with his mouth. In other words, he would say things and ask questions that deceive, they managed to trap Yitzchak. They managed to convince Yitzchak that Esav is this special, unbelievable, extraordinary, holy and righteous child. And Rashi says he would ask his father two questions. How do you give tithe from straw and from salt? A Jew tithes his or her food. It's one of the mitzvahs. Later we will learn in the Torah, Rashi's gancha person grows in their farm or field grain, fruits, vegetables, but it begins with grain. And we give a part of it to charity, to those who need it. So Esau is even holier than the regular person. Esau wants to know, how do you give meiser from salt and from straw? Now, these are two things from which we don't have to give meiser. We don't have to tithe these foods, not melt, not salt and not straw. So this is giving his father an impression that he's a very holy boy. Why did he ask about these two things precisely? Salt and straw. It's interesting. From all of this, there's many, many foods which you don't have to tithe. You don't have to tithe eggs. You don't have to, you don't have to give meiser from milk. <laughs> we give meiser. You don't have to give meiser from meat. You give meiser from things that grow on the ground. But two examples, salt and straw. 
Let's hold this. Let's hold these two questions in our mind. Beis Hashem will get back to them. Later on, we learn a story. Yitzchak is old. It's hard for him to see. His eyes are dim. And that's when he summons his oldest son and asks him to go hunt game for him and prepare for him food that he loves so that he can bless him before he passes away. And we all know the story. Rivka tells Yaakov that she will prepare him the food. She dresses him up with the garments of Esau and she sends Yaakov into her husband Yitzchak to get the blessings. When Yaakov comes into Yitzchak, he comes into Yitzchak. The Torah says, Yitzchak tells him, come over, I want to kiss you. Yaakov comes over and he kisses him. And Yitzchak smells the aroma of his clothes and he blesses him. Vayoymer and he says, and I'm quoting Genesis 27, verse 27, 27, 27, told us, Perik Chavzayim, Pasuk Chavzayim. Vayoymer, Yitzchak tells his son Yaakov, Re'ei re'ach b'ni kereach sada ashe Look, the smell, the aroma, the odor of my child, of my son, is like the smell of the field blessed by God. Very interesting. Yaakov comes in with the food. Yitzchak wants to kiss him. He kisses him. He smells him, and he smells his clothes. And then he gives a comment. What's this comment? Look at the smell of my son. My son exudes an aroma. Look at it. See it. It's like the smell of a field blessed by, by Hashem. And right after that, he begins the legendary famous blessings. May God grant you the dew of heaven, the fat of the land, abundant grain and wine. And he continues the blessings to Yaakov. In his mind, he's blessing Esau, but it's really Yaakov. And then when Yaakov leaves, Esau comes back and the dramatic and extraordinary and difficult narrative continues. On this verse, where Yitzchak says, look at the smell of my child, it's like the smell of a field that God blessed, there is a very intriguing teaching of our sages in the Midrash. This is a Midrash known as Sifri. Sifri is a commentary that was written by the great Talmudic sages, by Ravana's students, a commentary to the last Sefer of Chumash, Dvarim, Bamidbar and Dvarim, the last books of Chumash, Bamidbar and Dvarim. And this is on the last portion of Torah, Vezay Sabracha. And the Sifri says that the three patriarchs, Avram, Mitzak, and Yaakov, were shown the three temples, the three Batei Mikdash, the three sanctuaries that would stand in Jerusalem. They would see the first one built and then destroyed and then rebuilt. The Avos, let me, let me read to you the Sifri. It says, by Avram Avinu, he saw the Beis HaMikdash built, destroyed, and rebuilt. By the story of the Akedah, the end of Ayera, Avram called the name of the place where he brought Yitzchak as a potential offering, Hashem Yira, the place that God sees, he really had a vision of a sanctuary built. One day it will be said that on the mountain of God he will be seen. This is already the future Beis HaMikdash that he sees after the destruction. By Yitzchak, says the Sifri. Yitzchak says, So he says, See the smell of my son? This is really a vision of the Beis HaMikdash built. In fact, 
Reach means a smell, aroma. What happened in the Beis HaMikdash? Beis HaMikdash, they offered the offerings and they burnt the fragrance, which are both defined as a Reach Nichayach, as a beautiful aroma. There was a smell that was delightful to God. The word Bni comes from the word Banui. See the smell of the Beis HaMikdash, of the fragrance and the offerings of Bni when it's Banui, when it was built. Then, Kireach Sada. It's like the smell of the field. After the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the Prophet says, Tzion Sada Techoresh. Zion will be plowed like a field. This is referring to the Beis HaMikdash in its state of destruction, when it's desolate, when it becomes plowed like a field. Asher Beirach Hashem, which God blessed, this is referring to the Beis HaMikdash, rebuilt. Three stages Yitzchak sees. He sees the Beis HaMikdash built, destroyed, and then rebuilt. And that's referred to and intimated in the words of the Pasuk. Re'ei Re'ach B'ni is referring to the smell coming from the Beis HaMikdash when it's bonoi, when it's built. Kereyach Sada, like the smell of the field, is referring to the Beis HaMikdash when it's destroyed, and it's like an open field, as the Navi Scharius says, Zion will be plowed like a field. Asher Beirachai Hashem, which God blessed, is referring to the Beis HaMikdash rebuilt yet, once again, after its destruction. And then the Sifri continues, the same is true with Yaakov, he also saw these various stages in Jewish history, Manoira HaMokim is the Beis HaMikdash built, Einzeh is the Beis HaMikdash destroyed, Kiyim Beis HaLakim is the Beis HaMikdash rebuilt. Now this is a very fascinating commentary of the sages, and let's think about this. What would compel them to give this insight on this Pasuk? Yaakov comes in with the food, Yitzchak kisses him, Yitzchak loves his smell, he loves his aroma. And he blesses him. And he's about to shower upon him and confer upon him extraordinary blessings. As an introduction to these blessings, he says, wow, look at the aroma of my son, something special. It's like the smell of a field that God blessed. I get that. In other words, there's something so special about the energy, the the aroma, the odor that my son exudes. So he's extolling Yaakov, Yaakov Avinu's aroma. There are the famous Madrashim Rashi brings that he felt the aroma of paradise, of Ganadin, and other commentaries. Comes the Sifri and says, there's something deeper going on. He sees here the Beis HaMikdash built, destroyed, and then rebuilt. This is what he's seeing. Why would this vision be an introduction to the blessings? Especially vision number two. He sees the Beis HaMikdash built. This is the glory of Yaakov. He sees the Beis HaMikdash rebuilt. It's once again the glory of Yaakov. But he sees the Beis HaMikdash destroyed. The Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, as we say in the Musaf, because of our sins we were exiled. You allowed a hand to destroy your Beis HaMikdash. This represents the, the catastrophe, the moral downfall and failures of the Jewish people. The breakdown of the covenant which caused the Holy Temple to be destroyed and the Jewish people to be exiled. Why would this vision be the prelude to Yitzchak's blessings? Ah, I see the smell of the field. I see Zion plowed like a field destroyed. Now I want to bless Yaakov. There's something amiss here. Something seems strange. What is also interesting is that the vision of the destroyed Beis HaMikdash is referred to as the smell of a field. But a field doesn't mean something that's destroyed. A field is actually the source of produce and grain. The Navi says, Zion will be plowed like a field. But he says, I, I see the smell of my son. It's like the smell of a field. 
A field in and of itself is not a bad word. It's not a word of desolateness and destruction. The word sada is mentioned many times in Tanakh and many times in the literature of Torah, generally Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat And it's, it's a wonderful thing, a sada. It happens to be that Sion will be plowed like a field. Why is it that when Yitzchak is referring to the destruction, he has a vision of destruction, it's intimated in this term, the smell of a field, especially that the plowing of Tzion like a field was a second development, a later development after the destruction of the burning of the Beis HaMikdash. You may know the history, it was Adrian, the emperor of Rome, who had the mountain lowered. When we come today to the Temple Mount, the Harabais, it doesn't look like a mountain, right? Even though it's a mountain, Harabais. And the reason is because he lowered it by, I think, around a thousand feet. He plowed the whole place. So it's not only the Beis HaMikdash went up initially in the year 70, the Romans destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. They burnt it. But then later, decades later, Adrian had the whole place plowed to the point that it became plowed like a field. There was a field. There was nothing left. There was no remnant. And he also wanted to destroy the entire memory. So there should be no nostalgia anymore. Little did it help him. We mentioned it almost 60 times a day. So therefore, he lowered the mountain. He flattened it. That's why it looks the way it looks today. So Tzioin Sadat Echarish happens at a later stage in Jewish history. And yet, this is the term that the Torah uses, that according to the Medrash Sifri, this is how Yitzchak is perceiving the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. Now, the other terms... The other terms actually make sense. Reyach Bni is a great symbol for the building of the, of the, of the Beis HaMikdash when it's built because Reyach is the aroma, the smell. The Rambam says that the main function of the Beis HaMikdash was a place of karbonas. So it's the place of Reyach Bni built. Berachai Hashem for the Beis HaMikdash when it's going to be rebuilt because that's the ultimate blessing. The time of Geula, Mashiach. But the middle one, Reyach Sada, he chooses the field as a symbol of destruction. And really, there's also another question, like why is it relevant here exactly what would happen to Tzioi, that it would become plowed plowed like a field if it was destroyed this way or destroyed that way? Why is that relevant here? Let's change the subject here once again and focus on one more detail. There is a famous grammatical problem in the blessings of Yitzchak to Yaakov, and that's the opening letter. He begins, And God will give you. You don't begin a speech, a presentation, a blessing with the word and. When you begin with, you begin with the word and, once you completed a sentence or a half a sentence, then you continue and. The prefix vav is called vav achibur, which means, it's like in English, you would say and. So you could say, God should give you the dew of heaven and the fat of the land. Very nice. But you don't begin the blessing and God should give you. This is the opening. You begin the blessing. Yiten l'cha alikim. Hashem should give you. Not and Hashem should give you. This is not a continuation from before. Why does he begin with and? So Rashi gives us the famous explanation. One of his explanations is Yiten v'yachzer v'yiten. And God will give you. Yitzchak is saying something. He will give and he will give again. <laughs> he shall give you and he shall yet give again. So he's like saying and God will give you. What's the and? He, he, he didn't give me yet. No, 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 because I'm telling you that he shouldn't only give you once. I'm blessing you, he should give you and give you again. That's why he begins the blessing with the word vav. V'yitin. This is a continuation to the first blessing. Very interesting interpretation of the sages, but let's try to think about it for a moment. 
Why would I give you this blessing? I would say he should give you and he should give you again. In other words, I'm implying that the first giving is deficient. <laughs> That's why I want him to give it to you again. But I understand if I'm talking about a person giving you a gift, so I might say he should give you and give you again. Why? Because even if the first gift is impressive and abundant, nonetheless, every human being is limited, has finite resources. So therefore, as much as he gives you, he may not have everything or he may not give you everything. So he should be able to give you again and yet again and yet again. Also, the first time he gives you, he may have more, but he may not want to give you more. So I ask, I say he should give again and again. In other words, it makes sense to say he should give and give again. But in this case, where he's blessing him that Hashem should give him, if Hashem wants to give him, he can give him everything. What's this idea he should give and yet give again, as though the first giving is going to be insufficient. If God wants to give you according to God's desire to give, it's infinity. So what's give you and give you again? What is Yitzchak trying to intimate in the Yitim of Yitim? Now you could say, that maybe Yitzchak feels that the first giving might be limited. God will choose to give you a limited gift. So therefore Yitzchak says he should give and then give you again. But based on what? If he's going to give you, he can give it to you the first time. If he doesn't want to give it to you the first time, why is he going to give it to you the second time? Especially, this is not a blessing directed towards one individual and about a specific thing. This is a blessing that he's giving to Yaakov, who was the patriarch of all the Jewish people. And it was a blessing that included all of life and all of existence, mital shamayim from the dew of heaven and the fat of the land, from the highest to the lowest. So this is already a full blessing without limits. What did Yitzchak have in mind to start? Why did Yitzchak start off with the word vav right away implying there is giving, but and I want him to give you again because something will be missing in the first giving that has to be supplemented and complemented in the second giving. Our last question in our shir today is why he uses the word ha'eloikim. V'yitin l'cha ha'eloikim. A moment earlier he said, the smell of my child, the aroma of my child is like the aroma of a field, ashebeirachoy havaya, Hashem. Here he changes to eloikim. Eloikim, we know Hashem has different names. The name of eloikim represents, as Rashi says in the beginning of Chumash, midas hadin. The attribute of tr- of judgment, or as explained in many places, alakim is midasatzimtzum. The attribute of restrictiveness. But this is a blessing. This is about a flow of generosity and benevolence and giving. We would expect that the name should not be alakim, but that's what he says. V'yitin lecha ha alakim. He also doesn't say v'yitin lecha alakim. He says v'yitin lecha ha alakim, which is unusual. The prefix say v'yitin lecha alakim means God should give. V'yitin lecha alakim means the God should give you. The alakim should give you. There's only one God. Yitzchak was the ultimate monotheist. So we have many questions. Let's remind ourselves what the questions were. The first one was we discussed why name a child because he's holding on to the heel of his brother. The second is why Esau focuses on salt and straw in order to try to deceive his father. Number three is why did the sages understand Yitzchak focusing on the Beis HaMikdash built, the Beis HaMikdash destroyed, and the Beis HaMikdash rebuilt. How would the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash be a prelude to wanting to bless Yaakov? And why is it intimated in the word, the term field? I, I look at the aroma of the field. That's what represents destruction. And finally, why did Yitzchak feel that the first giving of God might be insufficient for some reason? And he right away says, and he should give you. He should give you and give you yet once again. What is the first giving and what is the second giving?
the presentation today, the answer, the explanation to this that I'm going to present today is based on an address that we heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This is before my times, but it was afterwards written and recorded and published. And if Abreng and Shabbos Parshas told us Tavshin Chavdalat, Shabbos told us 1963, the end of 63, published later in Lekutei Sichos, volume 10, Parshas told us. And uh, the Shia today, the class, the explanation today will be based on uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's explanation with some other sources, and I'm going to try to elaborate on it and expound on it and apply it to our lives according to my understanding. Perhaps the best way to understand all of this, the Rebbe said, would be by giving a metaphor of two types of mentorship. There are two types of teachers, there are two types of mentors. And let's go to Pirkei Yavis, the second chapter of the Ethics of Our Fathers. The Mishnah says, Chamisha Talmidim ben Zakai, the ultimate teacher. He was the man who actually lived through the destruction of the second Beis Hamikdash. He was the leader at the time. This is the year 70 after the Kamen Era. And the Mishnah says in Prikayavis chapter 2, Mishnah 9, Rabbi Yechina ben Zakeh had many students, but he had five unique students. Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanani, Rabbi Yosei Akayin, Rabbi Shemim ben Esanel, Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, and he would extol their praises and their virtues. I want to focus on two of these students. The first one, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus, Rabbi Yechina ben Zakeh had these words to say about him. He's a bursud she'enoi ma'abed tipa, which means a cemented cistern, which does not lose a drop. When he wanted to describe the virtue of Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Hurkanus, he said, Boir Sud. Boir is a cistern, a pit, a cavity in the ground. Sud, cemented. She'enoi ma'abed tipo. It does not lose a single drop. Which means Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus is the ultimate student, the ultimate disciple. He retains all the information, all the wisdom, all the inspiration, all the depth, all of the teachings of his teacher, Rabbi Yechina ben Zakai, without losing a drop. Even the greatest student absorbs, but how much do you absorb? You absorb 10%, 20%, 80%. If you listen to a shir, a lecture, even if you're a real disciple and a real student, and somebody says, no, can you repeat it? So some people could repeat 5%. Some people could only repeat the jokes. I didn't start off with a joke today, so I don't know what they'll be able to repeat. Some people can repeat 10%, 50%, 90%. says, not Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus. Rabbi ben Hurkanus was a cemented cistern, bursud, he retains everything. The ultimate dream of a disciple. Then he discusses another student, Rabbi, Eli- Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. First is Eliezer ben Hurkanus, and the second is Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. Rabbi Elazar, the son of Arach. What does he say about him? Kemayan hamizgaber. He's like a fountain which flows with ever-increasing strength. Mayan is a fountain or a wellspring. Mayan hamizgaber is the wellspring does not cease to flow. It continues to flow with ever-increasing strength. What is the difference between the quality of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkin as the cistern that is cemented that doesn't lose a drop, and the quality of the other student, Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach, who is like a fountain which continues to flow with ever-increasing strength? It actually represents two different students, two different types of students, and two models of leadership and mentorship and teaching. There is, in very simple words, there is a teacher who creates students. There is a teacher who creates teachers. There is a leader 
who creates followers. There is a leader who creates leaders. It's not only up to the leader, it's also up to the people who follow the leader. In other words, the leader can try to create leaders, but you also have to have material to work with. So it's, 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 a, it's about a relationship. The leader has to be of a certain nature, but also the follower, the disciple, the student has to be of a certain nature. You have sometimes a student who sits at the feet of a teacher. Now remember, we're talking about real students and real teachers. Both not so easy to find. A real student means a student who's really dedicated and committed, ready to suspend his or her ego in order to be able to absorb the information and the wisdom. And a real teacher is a teacher who completely suspends his ego to dedicate himself or herself to the disciple and the teacher. So when we're talking about an authentic teacher, an authentic student, you have a student who absorbs everything. And he internalizes it. And he understands it. And he can give it over. And he retains it. And he really lives with it. And he gets the information. But that's where it stops. He ultimately remains the ultimate disciple, the ultimate recipient. Don't underestimate this. A cemented cistern that does not lose a drop. In many ways, this surpasses any other quality, right? Like Rabbi Yechonim and Zakai will say later in the same Mishnah, he speaks about the various sages and he puts it and he says, if all of the sages were on one side of the scale and Eliezer ben Hyrcanus was on the other, he would over- outweigh them all. Because this ability, this ability to be able to retain everything from the teacher and not lose a thing is incredible. It's basically you have a replica of the teacher and the student. But then the Mishnah quotes another tradition. He said, if all the sages were on one side of the scale, including Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, and Elazar ben Arach was on the other side of the scale, he would outweigh all of them. In other words, there is a special, the Mepharshim explained, they're not arguing. There's something unique about Eliezer ben Hyrcanus. There's something extraordinary and unique about Elazar ben Arach. And the difference between the two is the first student is a recipient. Now, as a recipient, there could be many levels. A recipient, sometimes he just hears everything and repeats it. But sometimes a real student really gets it. He understands the methodology of the teacher. He understands the the principles, the foundations upon which the teacher's thoughts develops. He knows the formula. He gets what's called in Yiddish, they call it the schnitt, the mahalach. Sometimes you have a teacher who only gives information. That's it. But sometimes you have a teacher who also provides methodology so you could learn to think as the teacher thinks. But nonetheless, what is his job essentially? He is retaining, he is learning, he remains the ultimate student. There's another type of student. The student receives from his teacher the gift of creativity. The ability to be innovative, original, and creative, and to expand the teachings of his teacher far beyond even the horizons of the teacher. And this was the difference between Rebeleza ben Hurkanus and Rebeleza ben Arach. Rebeleza ben Hurkanus is the Barsuchena Mabatipa. He is the one who maintains the teachings of Rabbi Yechina ben Zakai in the most powerful, powerful way. Nonetheless, he remains the ultimate disciple and student. Rebelazah ben Arach, he is Kamayin Hamizgaber. He was given the gift of creativity. The gift of creativity means he expands the wisdom, he expands the information on his own. 
He took the ball of the teacher, but he runs with it, and he runs with it to places that are far beyond, and he can create new material, new information, new wisdom, new inspiration. It's like a mayon, like a fountain, like a wellspring. It doesn't stop flowing. It's not a cistern that is cemented, and whatever you put in, it's there forever. That's not what a wellspring is. A living wellspring is always flowing. There's always new water, new water, new water. And misgaber, with ever-increasing strength, it's not like yesterday it was strong, and the next year it becomes weaker. No, it continues. Because the bursu, the cemented system, whatever you put into it, it retains, and that's very powerful. Kamayan hamizgaber, it's not just what you put into it, it retains. No, it continues to flow with new ideas and new stuff. Why? Because this is the gift of chidush, of create, creativity. You know, it says in Parshas uh, Vayera, Lech Lecha, God promises Avram Avinu great reward, and he says, what are you going to give me already? I'm childless. And who runs my home? Damesek Eliezer. What does Damesek Eliezer mean? Literally means he came from Damascus, Damesek. But our sages say Damesek is a combination of two words. Eliezer was somebody who draw water from his teacher and he irrigated the whole world with his teacher's water. In other words, Eliezer, the servant of Avram Avinu, like Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus, same name, was the ultimate the ultimate man who imparted the Chayzer. He reviewed the teachings of Avram Avinu and he gave them over to the world. Doilo Mashke. He takes a bucket and he draws the water from Avram Avinu's wellspring and he gives, he hydrates the world with Avram Avinu's refreshing water, Ein Mayim Elatoyo Zigmar says, Zion. But this is strange. Avram Avinu is trying to explain to Hashem why he needs a child. He says, who did you leave me with? Eliezer? But then he extols the virtues of Eliezer. This is actually weakening his argument. If you have a student like Eliezer, if you have a servant like Eliezer, what do you need more? The answer is, Doilo Mashke Meteris Rabbi Lachedem. Eliezer is the Eliezer Ben Horkinos. He's a Boris Ruchenim Abba Whatever he hears from Avram Avinu, he really gets it, he retains it. He may truly, truly master it and understand it. I told you, within the first level itself, there are many, many levels. How much of the true depth do you retain? Do you get, do you get not only the, the software, but also the hardware? Not only the information, but also the foundations and the principles upon which the information is built. But even if you really get it all, you are a recipient. What he heard from his teacher, he can give to others. But that's limited. It's limited because he only has access to the information and to the wisdom of his teacher. There is yet a greater gift. And the greater gift is that you should become like your teacher himself. Just as he's original, just as he's creative, you also have that gift of originality, of creativity. You can trailblaze new terrains. You can expand and open up the world to new horizons. You can revolutionize old paradigms and see things in a completely new and unprecedented and creative way. There's a teacher who gives his students so much, ultimately he wants them to understand what he says. But there's another teacher who gives his student the ability to argue with what he said. I don't only want my student to be me, to be like me. In other words, my student to follow me, to, to give over my teachings. I want my student to be me. They say that there was once 
famous Hasidic master, and he changed a lot of things from his father's behaviors. So they once asked him, you were so loyal to your father, and now you're disrespectful. Your father did it this way, and you do it a completely different way. He said, it's because of my loyalty to my father, because my father deviated from the path of his father. (laughs) So for me to really respect my father, I have to be like my father. I have to copy my father. I'm copying my father. My father did not copy his father, and I am not copying my father. This is a very profound idea. You would think, how do you respect your father? By copying your father. That's one way. Sometimes you respect your father much deeper by not copying your father. This is not a rebellion that's coming from anger or antagonism. We're talking about a faithful student, the most faithful student. What makes him or her so faithful? That they can actually reinvent themselves. They can actually reinvent the information. The gift of their teacher was such a gift that I can not only copy my father, I could become my father. Which student is closer to the teacher? The first or the second? From a superficial perspective, the first one is much closer. Because the first one literally follows the path of the teacher. There's no new path. But really, the second student is much closer to the teacher. Because the first teacher, the first student remains a student. And the second student becomes an embodiment, a personification of the teacher. He becomes like the teacher himself. He's not just taking his light and giving it to the world. He becomes an etzem. He becomes like the teacher himself. Just like the teacher himself was a trailblazer, he's also a new trailblazer. In other words, he embodies and personifies the very teacher because he's so distinct in his, what do they say, there's an expression. Our greatest similarity is that we're different from each other. What makes us all so similar is that we're all different from each other. Can you really see the ability within yourself to inspire distinctiveness, individuality, independence? And in that sense, the teacher becomes most similar to his, the student becomes most similar to his teacher. You have a mother who nurtures the young within her nest, brings them all the food, they develop. But when they want to fly away, mommy says, no, 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 I want you to remain in the nest. That's not what a mommy bird does. Mommy says you acquired wings for a reason. Mother nature, the Rebbeinu Shalom, gave you wings for a reason. Comes the time when you have to fly away from the nest and go build a family of your own. When those young fly away from the nest, they say goodbye to mommy and tati and they leave the nest. On one level, they're the most distant. They're leaving, they're going into a dangerous world. A world in which their continuity may be jeopardized. A world in which there are many risks. But in other ways, that's when they become closest to mommy. Because now they become potential mothers themselves. Until that point, they remain young. The young, at this point, they actually can become mothers themselves. They're not only going to be close to their mother, they will become their mother. That's a whole, whole different perspective. Now, there is creativity and there's creativity. Creativity without limitations is self-destructive. <laughs> Very important. When we're talking about a teacher who inspires creativity in the student, we're talking about creativity that is productive, and that's why he's called a student. Why is Rebbe Lazar ben Arach called a student? He's not a student, he's creative, he's doing his own thing. No! He's not doing his own thing. That itself is a continuum of the teacher. In his creativity, in his ability to trailblaze new paths, to open us up to new paradigms, in his ability of chidush, he's actually paying the greatest tribute to his teacher. That too he received from his teacher. This is not a creativity that is completely uninhibited, which ultimately leads to self-destructiveness because creativity, when it has no moral boundaries, when it has no boundaries, can ultimately invent and come up with the most ludicrous ideas, which ultimately can be destructive to yourself and to others. Everything needs boundaries. 
even the lack of boundaries also needs boundaries in order to be to, to, to be productive, to create a better world. So the teacher gives the student the ability to be creative, inspired by the creativity of the teacher. So you have a teacher who's writing a book. And in the middle, you know, we have a place in Gemara, <coughs> excuse me, where it says, Kan Meis Rashi. Rashi passed away here. Sechta Baba Basra. And his grandson, the Rashbam, continues the book, continues the commentary. Sometimes a person is in the middle of writing his magnum opus and he passes away and it's left incomplete. So you have three types of students. One student sits by the book and cries and mourns because this book will never be completed. This is a true student who retained the information but can't really contribute on his own because he got the information but he did not get the principles, the methodology. You have a second student who can complete the book. He knows the mahalach of the teacher. He could complete the book. On one hand, it's his own creation, but on the other hand, it's not his own creation. Because he's being loyal to the author, to the original author. He's completing his teacher's book. But a new book he can't write. He could complete the teacher's book. Great student, but he can't write a new book. And then you have a teacher, a student, who can actually write a new book. It's his own book. It's new. And yet, this gift he also received from the teacher, the gift of independence, the gift of creativity. So there's a teacher who wants that the students should repeat his words. There's a teacher who wants that his students should understand his words. And there's a teacher who wants his students to create their own words. And every one of these is beautiful in its own unique way and has its space. You can't get to step three if you don't first work through the first two steps. The Borisu Chenem Abetipa must be the foundation for the Mayan Amizgaber. Because if not, you could just be an uninhibited anarchist. There's no substance here. There's nothing to hold on. There's no eternity. There's no foundation. But from steps one and two, we get to step three. So there's a teacher who wants the students to repeat his words. A teacher who wants the students to really understand his words. There's a teacher who wants to teach the students to ultimately create new words, new melodies, new ballads, and new symphonies. In other words, they shouldn't be students. They should become teachers themselves. They should become real replicas of the original teacher. He gives them the ability to rebel, to be rebellious. And again, I don't mean rebellious in an antagonistic and negative way. Rebellious in the sense that they are fiercely creative, fiercely independent, fiercely ambitions, ambitious. For this, a teacher has to give you not only skills, not only information, not only skills, he has to give you his core. You see why this student, in a way, is a much deeper student. He has the core. He doesn't only have information. He doesn't only have skills. He has the core. Avram was asking, Eliezer is a great student, but I want a child. The uniqueness of a child is that the child has the core of the father and mother, and therefore the child could be so different. Do you want your child to only continue and follow that same path, or do you give your child your core, and therefore you allow that child to soar and fly? And when that happens, the further the student goes, the more you see the teacher. The less you see the teacher, the more you see the teacher. You know why? Because it's in the independence and the creativity of the student that you see his mentor. And therefore, the more independent and the more creative and the more powerful, the more you can see his mentor, who's the invisible wind beneath his wings. The great leader takes pride in the fact that he or she created leaders 
who take responsibility, who become like the original leader, people who you could trust, they in turn can empower other leaders and yet other leaders and yet other leaders. V'yiten. Yitzchak says to Yaakov, God shall give you and give you. There is giving and then there is giving again. It's two different types of giving. The first blessing is God should give you and you should be able to be a student who retains all of those blessings. The second gift, and he shall give you, is the ability for you to be able to get yet a new gift. God will give you yet something else. The ability not only to remain a recipient, but the ability to become a creator. To become a leader yourself, not just a follower, not just a disciple, but really to become a leader yourself. We all know the story. Parshas told us, this week's Parshas told us, Avram Avinu dug many wells, but the Philistines plugged all the wells. So Yitzchak, after Avram's death, the wells are plugged. He, 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 he excavates. He once again redigs those wells that were plugged with earth. But then, surprisingly, he goes and he starts digging new wells, many more wells even than his father. So the famous Hasidic master of Simcha Binim of Pshischa, I think it's in Kol Simcha, explained something marvelous. I'm going to explain it in my own words the way I understood it. Avram Avinu was a trailblazer. He was original. He was creative. He didn't have a father to follow. He didn't have a Zayda to follow. He didn't have a society to follow. As the Rambam describes in the laws of his other chapter one. But Yitzchak was already a follower. Yitzchak had a father. Yitzchak had a wonderful education. He was born when his tati was 99, was 100 years old. Avram Avinu was chosen by God to be a blessing to the whole world. And he educated Yitzchak and he gave him the most incredible powerful education to the point that he's ready to go sacrifice himself. They walk together with a whole heart. And yet Yitzchak knew that that is insufficient. Because you cannot only drink from the wells of your father. You have to learn to dig your own wells. After Avram Avinu dies, the wells of Avram Avinu says, are plugged. Yitzchak can't irrigate himself from them anymore. You know why? Because if I only have what my father has given me, if I'm only drinking from my father's wells, Yitzchak knows that there's a major part of him that's untapped. There's a part of his soul that is unique, that searches for its own unique destiny. It has its own path that it has to trailblaze in order to transform the world into the divine, harmonious reality that it is, and therefore he has to dig new wells. The first Gerer Rebbe was the Chidushi Harim, the Bichamer Alter. He said a wonderful insight, marvelous insight. You know, we know, it says, that Avram and Sarah converted and brought to Hashem and to monotheism many, many souls. Rabbeinu Menachem Ameiri, the great 14th century Talmudic sage from France, writes in his introduction to Prikayovas that Avram Avinu managed to affect more than half of human civilization. What happened to all these people? They completely disappeared from the scene. We don't hear from them. Avram Avinu passes away. They're all gone. Where are they? Where are they? And the Chidush Harim says something very powerful. Avram Avinu passed away. They went to Yitzchak. But Yitzchak dug new wells. Yitzchak was not just a recipient of Avram Avinu. He wasn't only a cemented system that didn't lose a drop. He was also a well that creates new water. He had his own ma'alach, his own shnit. Yitzchak had a different midah. He had a different soul. He created new paths and new paradigms. And they couldn't recognize Avram Avinu there. The students of Avram Avinu came to Yitzchak and they were used to Avram Shnit and they couldn't find it in Yitzchak. And they left him. They said, you know what? Avram's legacy is gone. It's forgotten. We're going to go home and we'll do it on our own. We don't need Yitzchak. And ultimately they lost it. They lost touch because Yitzchak really was the closest to Avram. He was so close to Avram that he didn't have to be like Avram because he was Avram. 
I have to be like you and look like you when I'm not you. When I am you, I don't have to look like you. To use the terminology of the great mystics, when my etzem is your etzem, when our essence is one, I don't have to look like you. Because I am you. When our essence is not one, so then what connects us? The manifestations, the appearances. Yitzchak didn't look like Avram. In his service of God, there were so many differences. But Yitzchak was Avram. Yitzchak's essence was so connected to Avram. He became an Avram in his own unique way. The energy of Avram followed, flowed through the sinews of Yitzchak's soul. This is the gift of Mayan Hamazgaber. This is the gift that Yitzchak is giving Yaakov. There is molding and giving and inspiring and teaching and guiding and elevating and informing and educating and mentoring a student to the point that he becomes a real student. But then this Yaakov is even giving him a deeper gift and a greater gift. And that is, he should be so close to me, he shouldn't need me anymore because he becomes me. So we're always connected. Let's apply this to our lives. <laughs> this is true about leadership. It's true about teachers. It's true about parents. So it's true about every single one of us. There are two pathways in life. And I think most of us experience both, at least many of us experience both. One experience of life is I'm essentially a recipient of life. I'm a student of life. I try to be a cemented cistern and absorb all the gifts that life gives me. And there are so many. But many of us are challenged to do something very different. We can't just receive because often life gives us challenges. My lot in life is not always smooth. I can't just create a barsud, a cemented cistern, and say, hey, give me more. Often what I'm given are challenges. Often I have to face adversity and darkness and disappointment and failure and frustration. And now I have a choice. I can surrender to despair or resign to my failure, or I can take the challenges and transform them into a new path. I can use them as a springboard for a new awareness and a new life. But I cannot live the life that was just given to me. I have to reinvent myself. I have to sculpture myself anew. They once asked Michelangelo how he managed to create David. And he said, I saw the angel trapped in the marble and I chiseled away on the marble and I set the angel free. Sometimes what was given to me was, was a difficult lot. I have difficult challenges. We all know some of us face internally, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, some things that we have to overcome. I can't just say, give me more and I'll just take it. I have to reinvent myself. I have to become a new person. I have to challenge myself to the core. And it comes with a lot of pain. It comes with a lot of tears. There's an element of grief. There's, an, there's denial. There is the famous stages, right, of, 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 of dealing with, with terrible loss. There's denial. There's anger. There's bargaining. There's grief. 
then there's acceptance and maybe even celebration. But it's a very, very deep process. The first person is a student of life. You get what you're given and you go with it. And it's amazing. You create a boyersud, a cemented cistern, and you get the water and it's wonderful water. And you have great water. The second person can't drink that water. That water is not going to work. That water is, is tarnished. It's contaminated. You have to become your own source of water. You have to become a living wellspring. And this is a very different, it's a very different life. What do they call it today? It's your second mountain. It's not your first mountain. In many ways, these are the two models known as the Tzaddik and the Baltruva. The Tzaddik and the Baltruva. The Tzaddik, I'm not here talking about the terms as they are used conventionally, BT, FFB. I'm talking about an internal state of life. It's not where you were born or how you were born or where you were raised, although it's sometimes connected to that as well. The tzaddik is the person who is a cemented sister who takes it all in. He follows the trajectory that the creator of the world has established for the human being and for the Jew. There's something called ways. We call it derech the ways, GPS, God's positioning system, or known as the shulchan aruch. This you do and this you don't do. And he or she follows that path and becomes a recipient of divine wisdom, divine inspiration, divine blessings, and divine awareness. And that's incredible. And it's incredibly powerful, and it's incredibly inspiring. But let's take the other person, the Baltruva. The Baltruva represents the person who's struggling. They can't just deal with what they have. They have to reinvent themselves. I am struggling. I'm struggling with temptations, with instincts, with anxiety, with inner or outer toxic forces that overwhelm me. I'm struggling with it. What do I have to do? I have to reinvent myself. Yitzchak has to dig new wells. I have to find the invisible water under my debris and under my rubble and under my earth. The Baltruva is the person who often fails or the person who sins and transgresses and sometimes ends up in the abyss. It's the person who surrenders to depression or to addiction. Is this person hopeless? No. This person is now the second type of student. He is charged with the mission to create a new path, to trailblaze a new path. One of the greatest Hasidic masters, I think it was the Holy Ruzhaner, Bisral of Ruzhaner, I'm not sure if it was him. He once said something incredible. Listen to this. He said, when a Jew sins, what is really, really happening is he is beginning to trailblaze a new original path to God. The great poet Rabbi Shlaim Ibn Gabiril said, I run away from you to you. I can't run away from you because I can't run away from me and you and me are one. But I run away from you, but I'm really going to you. I'm just creating a new winding path. Rabbi Tzadik HaKayin says, the Gemara says, in Gitin the Torah compares and juxtaposes v'hoisa marriage to divorce, and therefore we learn the halachas of marriage from the halachas of divorce, and he says, spiritually, even when it looks like that a Jew left the relationship with God, essentially he or she was just creating a new, deeper type of relationship. I'm starting to a new path. You know, you're driving down the highway. That's the tzaddik. He follows the road and he follows the direction. Then there's a person who does not follow the direction. Way he says, go right, and you say, no, I'm going left. Pun intended. Way says go straight, and they say, no, I'm, making, I'm going the other direction. 
way says, don't turn there. Say, yes, I turned there. Where do I end up? I end up in the wilderness. What happens now? I'm off the beaten track. And from here, I create a new path. A new path to Irelikainu, a new path to Hashem. It's a path that goes through darkness. The path travels through challenge and brokenness. And this is why the Gemara says in Tractate Yuma, page 86, Reish Lakish, the ultimate Baltruva, says that when somebody repents out of love, the sins become mitzvahs. How can one say this? I do tshuva out of love and the sins become mitzvahs? How can sins become mitzvahs? Yesterday I sinned, that becomes a mitzvah? Retroactively when I do tshuva, I revealed that yesterday's sin was essentially trailblazing a new, unprecedented, original path to oneness, to truth, to Hashem. It's not the path that God gave me. God said, don't go over the beaten track. Take the blessings and run with them. But this is a person who failed and stumbled. And from the darkness and from the failure and from the negativity, he or she transforms those very toxic and negative forces into a springboard of unprecedented rejuvenation and growth and renewal. The ultimate Mayanam is the ultimate creativity. That's the life of the Baal The ultimate, I create something new. God gave me certain directions and certain laws. I violated those directions and those laws. Or if you want to use a different form, model of psychology, I'm dealing with issues that challenge my life and who's not. Can I take those very forces and those very realities and redefine them as a path back to the teacher? This is where ultimate creativity comes in. This is where you have to become the author of your own biography. You cannot just be a recipient. You have to be a creator. You've got to reinvent your life. That angel is trapped and you have to rediscover, sculpture that angel. This is where you're not only a student of God, but you become divine. You become an embodiment of Hashem in this world, so to speak, a representative of Hashem in this world. Your etzem, your essence is divine. You're not just an Eliezer, Doilo Mashka, you're a child. Yitzchak's blessing to Yaakov. He's giving him a dual blessing. One is the blessing for the Avoid of a tzaddik, And one is the blessing of the Avoid of the Baal The person who pushed the boundaries. The person who broke the fences. Who penetrated, who breached the boundaries. You weren't supposed to go there. There is a stop sign. There is a fence. No, I pushed the boundaries and now I'm lost. And what seems like loss and toxicity and negativity... The Baal manages to create a new path, an unprecedented pathway to God from that place. That itself is a gift from Hashem. The ability for tshuva is also a gift from Hashem. Just like the ability for creativity is a gift of a mother and a father and a great teacher. Just like the ability to become a leader is a gift that you're given by your leader. This itself comes from God. And in each one of our, every one of our lives, we start off the day. You start off the day as a cemented system. You don't want to lose a drop. Thank you, God, for giving me my soul. And then I go to pray. What is prayer? Prayer is surrender. Prayer is I turn to Hashem and I say, be here with me, guide me, direct me, bless me. I ask for what I need. Prayer, I am the ultimate recipient, the ultimate student. I want to get every drop of water and retain it. But then God says it's time to leave Shul and it's time to become your own human being. After davening, you go learn. And learning, you have to use the creativity of your own mind. And then you go and you confront the world and who knows what the world is going to bring about. So in each of our lives, we have this, this dual identity. Yitzchak tells Yaakov, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you the ultimate blessing to be able to receive. 
But there's also another type of gift I want God to give you. And that's the gift to be able to be creative with your life. To be able to look at lemon and turn it into lemonade. To be able to look at what seems like scattered notes and turn it into a symphony. Turn it into a, a beautiful musical ballad. The first blessing is that you should be able to be to be a true student. And the second blessing is that you should be able to be a true a true leader. The first blessing is that you should be me. And the second blessing is that you should be you. The first blessing is that you should be a true recipient. Great gift. And the second blessing is you should be able to be to be truly you. <clears throat> Who is Yitzchak giving this blessing to? He thinks it's Esau. Really, it's Yaakov. Why is he giving this blessing to Esau? Esau was a struggling soul. We spoke about this many times in previous Taldas classes. You could see them all on the yeshiva.net. A lot of classes on Taldas deals with this idea that Esau was a struggling soul. And Yitzchak knew it. And he loved him because he understood the potential of the tshuva to take your struggles and turn them into Divine creativity. And as the Gemara says in Brachas, the place where Bali Tshuva stand, the Tzaddik can't stand because he taps into infinity. The Tzaddik is the one who receives. The Bal Tshuva is the one who creates. There's an element of infinity there. He's not only receiving from God, he becomes divine and therefore he can create a new world just like God created a new world. The Medrash says in Vayechi, uh, Medrash says in, uh, in Vayechi, Yaakov Avinu calls himself Kale. Shimu El Yisrael Avichem says Medrash Rabbah El Yisrael Avichem Ma Hashem Bayreilamus Afavichem Bayreilamus. God creates worlds, and your Father creates worlds. God creates a world with boundaries, and then we create a new world. We break those boundaries. We 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 uh, push those boundaries. We trespass, and we create a new world out of darkness, light. He wants to bless Esav with this gift. Yitzchak understood this when Yaakov was born. Yaakov was holding on to the heel of Esav. So what's happening? Esav is going out of the womb and he's pulling, he's pulling Yaakov essentially. Now imagine, you're running and I'm holding on to the heel. What's happening? You're pulling me with you. You are schlepping me out of my present situation. What does this represent? This represents the extraordinary symmetry and potential unity between Yaakov and Esav. Esav will be the one who will uplift Yaakov. In my personal life, it means those aspects of my life that challenge me cause me to reinvent myself and bring me to the greatest heights. So I'm holding on to their heel, cave, Esau, because they are going to make me the person I'm capable of becoming. Without them, I would just remain a limited, finite person, stuck and complacent in my own finite orbit. It's the challenges that I'll cause me to excavate myself, to find my inner angel, to find my infinite resources. I cannot remain stuck in my orbit. It's not going to work. My life is not going to function that way. I was talking to a group of six or 700 therapists, a lot, a lot of therapists. They have a conference. And I told them that they asked me to speak about what, um, where the Kabbalah and Chassidus, what it contributes to therapy. So I spoke about seven or eight, seven, eight, nine points but I brought out one point that I think is a very, very, very powerful point. You could look at your patient, I told it that you could look at your patient and see it as bidiyevet. You could look at your patient and see it as lechatchila. I'll explain. I could look at the patient and say, okay, listen, you know, you were given lemons. 
this is this is a miserable, miserable situation. But I'm your therapist. I'm going to try to help you live the best life possible. There's a much deeper perspective, and this is the perspective that specially, it's, it's really the essence of Judaism. You'll see it everywhere. But the Baal Shem Tov and his students really expounded on this idea. And that is, you're not a Bidiyeved, you're a Lechatchila. You're not a failure, but we'll make the best out of it. You know what? Fine. You didn't win the marathon. Okay. You, you know, you'll come in place 631, better than sitting at home in cow, on the couch potato. At least you got to run a little bit. It's much deeper than that. This is your lechatchil. It's not your bidiyevet. This is what allows you to become infinite. The yadr yechezes ba'kev esav. When you find the esav in your life and you hold on to the heel of esav, you're holding on to that force, to that person, to that reality, which will bring you up which will schlep you out of where you are, yes, with tears, yes, with pain, yes, with challenge, but this is what will cause you to reinvent yourself. Sometimes, you know, we meet ourselves, we meet people struggling very heavily. One way of looking at it is nebach. And yes, empathy is always the first step. Empathy, empathy, empathy. But then I have to tell myself something deeper, and that is, there is tremendous light hidden here. And if I can take this darkness and transform it into light, I will find, I will discover who I really am. I will become a new person, not the old person. That's the second student. That's the yitin v'yachzer v'yitin. That's why it's v'yitin l'chaha elokim. Elokim is midas hatsimtsum. I have to be able to see the pain as the springboard to this tremendous new awareness. That's that's why he says you're holding on to Esav's heel. Esav is going to be the one who will elevate you to the deepest space. This is the blessing Yitzchak wants to give Esav, and yet Esav doesn't get the blessing. Yaakov gets the blessing because this is where Esav's mistake was. He asked Yitzchak, "Why do we tie? How do we tie the salt and the straw? What's salt? You don't eat salt independently." Salt is something, it's a preservative, but it's also something with which you use, you put a little salt into the salad. If you put too much salt into the soup and the salad's inedible. A little salt, yes, salt is an accompaniment to the food. You don't eat salt, you eat salad. The salad needs a little salt. The soup needs a little salt. The meat needs a little salt. And the Japanese will put salt also on watermelon. The watermelon also needs a little salt. What about straw? You don't make a meal out of straw. Straw is used as fuel. For a fire. You want a fire, you need fuel, you put straw. Or so, to be used as animal fodder. You need an animal, you have an animal, you have the, 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 the oxen that used to plow the fields, or whatever they use the oxen for. The oxen is called Michael Behema. The animal is under the domain of the person. So therefore you don't tithe them. Why don't you tithe them? Because these are not independent foods. They are subservient to other foods. Asaph says, no, let's tithe straw and Salt, what is he really saying? He wants to take those things that are subservient, that are really just there to accompany others and turn that into an independent objective. We all have struggles. I have darkness. I have challenges. But they're not there to be worshipped. They're there as springboards so you can reinvent yourself and find who you really are. Don't get stuck in them. Don't turn them into independent realities. And that's where Esau went wrong. And that's why the ultimate blessing has to go to Esau ultimately, but through Yaakov. And Yaakov has to adopt both models in life, the model of the tzaddik and the model of Baal And that's why what Yitzchak says when Yaakov comes in, he says, I see the aroma of a Beis that's built, representing the tzaddik, but I also see the aroma of a Beis that's destroyed. Zion is plowed like a field. What happens when you plow a field? You look at a field, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. The earth is calm and stable. What does plowing do? It unsettles the earth. 
You toil the earth. There's an expression, Merapi Are, Rashi Masechta Shabbos. You weaken the earth and you toil it. And the clod of earth that was here now gets upturned on its head and it gets thrown elsewhere. You ever feel like that in life? Where the pain of life plows you and the stability is gone? And what happens now? Is this in order to cause you to resign or is it in order for you to reinvent yourself and allow your earth to become fertile and something new is going to grow? So yes, Yitzchak sees that second step, the step of failure, the step where we're plowed, where our life is turned around because of our failures or our challenges or our darkness or our toxicity or, or things that you endured as a child or as an adult or struggles you have to deal with. And that represents a destruction of a base where it becomes desolate. And yet, he also sees that from that itself, the earth becomes a fertile place, a place that can create growth without plowing the field. It becomes a fixed place. It's a nice field, but nothing will grow. You're not going to have amazing food and produce growing. It's through the plowing that you have a whole new base HaMikdash. Those are the three things that Yitzchak sees at this moment as an introduction to the blessings. The synthesis ultimately, which will become ultimately of Yaakov and Esau at the end of days. The synthesis within myself between my light and my darkness, realizing that everything in my life is really a prelude for light, that even the challenges and toxicities that are there and they're a real part of me, and they cause me to plow my field. I have to allow myself to be vulnerable. And who wants to be vulnerable? But it's the vulnerability. That's the stage of plowing. And in that plowing, you become that person who can reinvent himself or herself and not just be a recipient of the divine, but you touch the divine because you become one with the divine. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful week. I'm going to take some questions now. Okay, question number one. How can I become stronger in the sense of not feeling jealousy and work with the acceptance of each one's life and journeys? How do I learn to accept my life and my journey? That's a good question. (laughs) I think it's part of what we're talking about. I think that's the real point. When I realize that my life is not bidiyavid, it's lechatchile, it's not de facto. Okay, this and this, this happened to me, I'll make the best out of it. Yeah, I know we all have that feeling. And this does not mean you should wish upon yourself challenges, God forbid. But it means when I realize that every moment was created and given to me as a gift, and this is my journey and my expectations for a different type of life and a different type of reality are really coming from a place that limits me and restricts me. It doesn't allow me to be the person I'm supposed to be. It doesn't allow my creativity to shine. Now you'll say, but I never asked for it. <laughs> you know, on a mystical level, the mystics say, based on a Gemara and Rosh Hashanah, that every soul, before it comes down to this world, chooses the life it's going to have. It consents to it and it embraces it enthusiastically. In other words, we wouldn't have chosen anything else because this is my calling. This is who I am. Now, these are not easy words to accept and it comes with pain. You know, people who just say, yeah, it's fine. It's all good. I don't buy that. Some, it's a struggle. There's an element of grieving, but ultimately I have to embrace and say, you know, this is it. This is where reality is. This is where I'm going to find God. This is where I'm going to become one with God. Beautiful question. Thank you. How does somebody see the smell of something? He says, look at the smell of my, of, of my son. I guess it's a form of uh, synesthesia. <laughs> There's probably more to say about that. Next question. Are we locked into the type of student that we are because we were created that way? Can a person be locked into not giving over despite much learning? We're never locked into anything. I think we have different stages of life. Some At some stage, we can be at tzaddik and at another stage, we become a balchuva, meaning... Till a certain point in my life, everything was working well, and then things start breaking down, and I have to reinvent myself. I have to reinvent the will. I have to become creative in life. I have to become a baltruva. 
Not everybody, sometimes God's mission is that you should be a tzaddik. Sometimes your mission is to be a baltruva. It's usually a mixture. There's a synthesis of both. But you see, Rebbe Lezeb and Herkinus represented one model. Rebbe Lezeb and Arach represented another model. Everything in life is integrated. We're all part of oneness. So therefore, there's no complete polarity. I have part of you in me, and you have part of me in you. Next question. Seems you are answering the question. Yitzchak thought he was giving these blessings to Esau. But he was giving really these blessings to Yaakov. So why did he think he's giving it to Esau? Because Yitzchak wanted to accomplish and give Esau the gift of tshuva, which would have allowed Esau to ultimately shine in the most powerful way. But Esau was not ready for it yet. Okay, we have somebody who's joining us from UAE, the Abraham Accords, making peace between Yitzchak and Yishmael. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We have somebody... Oh, it's you. Okay, wow. Where are you? In Bar- Which? I am in Abu Dhabi, United States. Sorry, United Arab Emirates. Wow, it's you're. Here and we have here. We, wow. Okay, well, listen to this. We have here a class. I'm sitting in Munsi, and you're sitting in Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, yes. Abu Dhabi, uh, United Arab Emirates. Yeah, 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 yeah. The um, the UAE. And uh, I have to. I'm a Pakistani, and I have to say, I love the way you pronounce. The words, because they sound very much like our language, Urdu, but I hardly understand you. <laughs> you didn't understand? <laughs> yeah, so some of the words that you're pronouncing are, are very much heavy... Um, English? Hebrew words, I suppose. No, 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 I do have, my pastor is a South African, that's not a concern. Wow, okay. But, but you, you beautiful uh, words, your pronunciation of ha and ha, there's something that we learn in our schools, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> wow, thank you. It's an honor and privilege to have you with us. All the way from the UAE. Pleasure, pleasure. Okay, listen. Listen, you'll get used to it. With time, you'll get more used to it. And you'll uh, pick it up more and more until until you'll become a cemented cistern that doesn't lose a drop. Yeah. Lovely, I would love to do that. Okay, beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Next question. When you say that Yitzchak didn't look like Avram, did you mean physically or by his behavior? Doesn't it say that Yitzchak, Hashem, made a miracle that Yitzchak should look like Avram so nobody should doubt the paternity of Abraham due to his advanced age? Excellent question. And the answer is, that is, your question is your answer. The sages say, and Rashi brings it, that what did God do to disprove people who were saying that Avram is not Yitzchak's father? God sculptured Yitzchak's face, it should be similar to Avram. So the commentators say, what do you mean God did a special act? This is natural. Nature. People look at a child and say, wow, you look just like your father. You look just like your mother. When your father was your age, he looked just like you. It's not a unique supernatural phenomenon. It sounds like, what did God do? He made Yitzchak look like Abraham. And the answer to this is very profound. You see, the reason that a child looks like a father or mother is because a child reflects the father's and mother's souls. And therefore, the DNA, the spiritual DNA, is mirrored in the physical DNA. But Yitzchak actually had a very different type of soul. Avram was chesed, Yitzchak was gvura. So therefore, the DNA was so different. So God had to actually demonstrate that Yitzchak looks like Avram physically. Because spiritually, one could make a mistake that they don't look like each other, because they didn't. And yet, even though they didn't look like each other, they really were the most like each other because both of them were serving God. Avram and Yishmael externally were more similar than Avram and Yitzchak. I don't mean physical features. I'm talking about character. Yishmael was an extrovert. Avram Avinu was out there. Yitzchak was introverted. Very introverted. Yira, awe, reverence, restrictiveness, internalization. He was digging the wells. 
So Avram and Yishmael superficially looked much, much, much closer. They looked, they seemed more alike. And yet in essence, Yitzchak was Avraham. Avraham was an absolute conduit for Hashem in this world. And Yitzchak was an absolute conduit for Hashem in this world. Next question. There's that famous quote, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. But you're telling us something else. You're saying that if life gives you lemons, you should make orange juice. <laughs> Why orange juice? Why not a vanilla milkshake? A vanilla milkshake, and you can put in a little lemon. I don't know if it's going to work. Okay, next question. I would like to thank you very much for this class. It's exactly what I needed to hear at this point in my life. Thank you so much for sharing that. It means a lot. Here's another question. I'm attempting to reach out and help somebody who needs the transmission of the light. They have gotten stuck in their pain behaviors, and there is no commonality that allows this person to connect with me. Yet, the world offers so many distractions. It feels that in my attempt to help, I barely can stay afloat sometimes with being exposed to all of the dysfunction and all the darkness. I keep praying, and I try to get centered, and I know this is also part of my gift to reinvent myself and preserve yeah, it's sometimes difficult and you have to acknowledge that. And it's very important to pray and to be centered and to come from a place of inner honesty and inner vulnerability and inner strength. And not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. I wish you all a blessed, wonderful, inspiring, integrated, unified, original and creative week in which we should be able to experience both the first giving and the second giving, thank you very, very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.